we get started this morning, I want to tell you a little story that happened uh, to my wife and I, our family, a couple years ago. Um, it was fall of 2018, and I was invited to speak at a benefit for um, a ministry. And it was an EcoTrust building downtown. And so I went, I shared, and I sat down, ate a nice meal, talked to some people. And you know when you go to those, they Recording give you an progress. invitation to, to give, right? You go into those events knowing that there's going to be an invitation to give, to partner with them in their ministry. And so the, the gal's up there, and she's talking, and she just invites us all to close our eyes and just to, to pray and to listen to the Lord. And as I do that, I see this number in my mind's eye. And I think, oh, right, yep, not happening. And she's like, you know, some of you guys, as you listen to the Lord, he's putting something on your heart, and I just want to encourage you to just to kind of ask him again or just, you know, continue to lean into that and see what he would say to you. And so I'm sitting there again and quietly, and the same number pops in my head. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you what, it was, it was $1,000, okay? Um, and let me give you some context to that $1,000. This was 2018. My wife had been laid off in 2017. Uh, Mason had been born about four or five months earlier. So we'd been on just my income for a year and a half. We had, my wife was not with me. She was at home. We had a three-year-old at home, Otis, and this newborn, Mason. And we, my wife and I, when we got married, we had committed to say that, that we tithe. So we've been tithers ever since. So we'd already given our tithe that month to Missio. Outside of our tithe, we give additionally to other ministries, and we'd already done that for the month. And so we're sitting there, and there's this $1,000. You kind of get the context of what $1,000 meant for our family at that time. And so literally, I'm just going, okay. So I text Christine, and I just said, hey. She knew where I was, and I just, you know, I, I, it's that giving time, you know. And she kind of, she goes, ha-ha, right? And she says, so what do you think? And I said, well, um, I feel like God's telling us to give $1,000 to this ministry. And she said, wow, that's a lot. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And, but then she said, but if you feel like that's what God is saying, then I trust you. And her words of saying, if that's what God's saying to you, then I trust you, is just kind of the confirmation of partnership I needed to go, okay, God, if this is the number you're putting in front of me, then I trust you. See, this number wasn't odd in terms of me seeing it in my mind's eye. God has spoken to me throughout my relationship with him over time and a number of times that way where he just gives me pictures of images of things and I'm you know, able to then discern and go through that. But it was more that season where when she got laid off, we had just said, you know what, we're not going to look for work because we, right as the time she'd gotten laid off, we'd found out she was pregnant. And we just thought there's no point in her finding new work. We're, we're just going to kind of ride this out and we're going to trust God. But that night, God kind of said to me, do you really trust me? Like, how much do you trust me? Like, $1,000 do you trust me? Do you know what I'm saying? This morning, we're going to be starting a new series, and um, in order to do that, I want to open up the book of Genesis and look at the narrative of uh, a man named Abram that we soon know him to come known as, as Abraham. But kind of the background or the context would be uh, Genesis 1 through 11, right? And in Genesis 1 through 11, it tells us the story that, that God created the world, and he created all things good. He created man and woman, and he said it's very good, and at that point, he entrusted man and woman with stewardship and rulership, if you will, over this earth that he had created. Uh, however, you guys know what happens, right? Man and woman misuse the power. They misuse the stewardship, uh, and it doesn't really go well. What ends up happening is the world, for lack of better words, spins out of control, right? In death, in destruction, violence. 
And finally, we find ourselves um, in chapter 11 of Genesis, and in the midst of rebellion and the scattering of people, what God does um, in Babylon at the Tower of Babel is he, does, he just scatters the people, and he says, there's too much wickedness, there's too much crookedness. Man was trying to exalt themselves to this place of being God, and God was just heartbroken to a degree and thought, they're just pushing me aside. They're, they're not wanting to walk in relationship in the life that I have for them. And so we get then to Genesis 12, and that's where we see the actual call of this man named Abram. And it's there that God calls out to him, and God initiates, if you will, through Abram, and from that point on, his, his rescue plan, his redemption plan, to begin to repair and restore life with humanity in the way that God intended, and also the world functioning the way that God intended. Uh, what God does in chapter 12 is he comes to Abram, and he calls him, and he tells him to leave his land and his people and where he is, and he says, if you follow me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have so many descendants, as many as the stars, if you follow me. Uh, and he promises them that, that he's going to have a son. Now, again, the context and backdrop of that is that at the time, Abram was 75 years old. He was married, uh, and his wife was 10 years younger, so she's 65, and she's barren. They have no children, and yet God says, leave all that you have, and I promise you that if, if you trust me, this is, this is the picture, this is the future that you are going to have, you're going to be the father of, of great nations. And so what we find out is that, yeah, 25 years later in Genesis 21, um, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. And what we find out, though, is that the long wait for Isaac wasn't Abraham's great test of faith, but instead what comes next in chapter 22 is that great test. And that's, that's where I want to pick up, and that's what I want to read together with you. Um, and now I know as we read this, uh, many of you go, I know that story. Great, I'm glad that you do. Uh, for those of you that, in, that are in EHS and Emotional Healthy Spirituality, we looked at this story a couple weeks ago and we kind of wrestled with it. Um, but I want to look at it this morning as we kick off this new series that we're starting. And uh, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But yeah, Genesis chapter 22, uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to open up and just start by reading the first four verses and we'll follow along and work our way through this. But uh, here's what it says. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him to go. So God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. After making him wait 25 years, God calls him to sacrifice the one and only son that he gave him. Now, when you read this, I mean, I'm thinking Abraham must have been confused, right? As we read this, even here today, often we are confused. Uh, why would God promise him a son, make him wait 25 years for that son, Give him that son and then tell him to go and sacrifice that son. Like, I mean, at best, it's a strange inconsistency in God's character and in the plan, right? At worst, it's like an evil plan by like an evil taskmaster. I think what's interesting is that Abraham, though, in the midst of this, becomes the very first person in the story thus far, 22 chapters of Genesis, he becomes the very first person to actually listen to God's voice, to hear God's voice, and respond to God with these very like, vulnerable but very honest words of, here I am. 
See, what happens in Genesis chapter 3, if we're gonna, I want to flip over there and just read that for a minute, is that after God created the world and he created everything good, you know, we know that Adam and Eve endure a test as well, right? And it's a test not from God necessarily, but it's a test from the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 8 to 13, it reads and it says this. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. See, right, right after the fall, uh, God comes and he pursues. God comes and he initiates. God comes and he speaks and he calls out to Adam and Eve, the very first humans that he created. And what do they do? They, they actually run and hide, right? There's shame, there's hiding, there's blaming. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a hot mess, right? And it basically is the trajectory, again, that leads us up until Genesis 12 when God intervenes again and God chooses Abram and Sarai and says, Come, come and follow me. You now what happens is that, yeah, they go through this 25-year journey with God, and they finally get to this place where, again, God gives them the son, but then God tells Abraham, go and sacrifice this son that I've given you. I'm utterly shocked, as I'm sure you are, if this is the first time hearing or the first time you read it. Like, I'm utterly shocked both that God would ask Abraham to do that, but even more so, like, I'm shocked at Abraham's willingness to respond in faith and obedience to what God had asked him to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of ludicrous. I remember in EHS a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this. It was four of us dads, and we're looking at each other going like, no, <laughs> no, just, just no. Like, this is not happening, right? But what we see is that Abraham responds in faith. And I want to talk about that a little bit, because this is, this is going to be pretty key in each of these, these chapters that we look at in this series, each of these accounts that we look at. Is, is where and how do people come to this place of being able to respond to God and say, God, here I am, in the midst of him calling out to them. Now, all the circumstances are going to be different, and yet there's a key phrase that is said by each individual, and it's that phrase, here I am, or here am I. So I want to look at this with Abraham. How does, how does Abraham get to this point of faith and obedience? And what I would propose to you is this, that this wasn't Abraham's first experience with God, right? Over the 25 years, Abraham... Uh, has encountered and wrestled with God a number of times in a number of ways. Right? The very first time he was called, again, was in Genesis 12. And at that moment, he did. He wrestled with his age. He wrestled with the age of his wife. He wrestled with her barrenness. He wrestled with all of that. So much so that we see that the very next place that they go after they leave the land, what does Abraham do? Does anybody remember? He lies about who she is and says, don't, don't tell them that you're my, you're my wife. Tell them that you're my sister. Because if, if, if not, they're, they're going to kill me because they want you. And what we find out is that Abraham doesn't only lie over this 25-year period about Sarai being his wife once, but he does it twice, if you recall. Twice to save his own hide, to try to, again, take control of the situation and circumstance and be able to move, if you will, the story or redemptive history along the plan that God has told him, but to do it in his own way with his own control. We also see that he has this nephew named Lot, right? You guys remember Lot? And God told him to leave Lot, and Lot goes into Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's this hot mess there as well. And, and what we see is that Abraham actually pleads and intercedes for his, for his nephew and for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he actually has this interaction with God. 
And I think this interaction is key because one of the things that I think allows Abraham to actually trust God here in Genesis 22 is, comes out of the wrestling that we see him do in Genesis chapter 18. I want to read for you a couple of verses. And this is in Genesis 18 where, where he's basically bartering or negotiating with God about what should happen in, in Sodom, what should happen there with his nephew and the people. And this is what, this is what it says in verse, verse 25. It says, Far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? See, what Abraham realizes here through all of his wrestlings, through all of his failures and God's forgiveness, through all of his questioning and God's faithfulness, through all of his doubting, and yet God persistently presenting the vision of his life and what God has for him before him, I think there in Genesis 18 is where Abraham actually, maybe for the first time or the final time, solidifies in his heart and in his mind who God is and who he believes God is. That he actually believed that God was good, that God was just, that God was the ruler of the whole earth, and there's no way that he would destroy all the people in Sodom and Gomorrah if he could find just a handful and a few that were faithful. And so, and what we found was that God did just that. He preserved and he allowed Lot and his family to come out, but God did destroy the rest. It showed to Abraham that God is just, that God is faithful, that God is good. And it allowed Abraham, again, through all his wrestling, through all his questioning, all these years around the mountain, finally to realize here in Genesis 22 that when God calls me and he says, go and sacrifice your son, my only proper and right response is, Lord, here I am. What would you have me to do? See, Abraham obeyed God, I think, because he understood and he knew God personally. He knew God's character, and he knew the consistency of who God was, and it allowed him to respond in faith and obedience. Abraham obeyed God's unexpected command because he trusted in God to fulfill his promise, and he knew that God at his heart was good. I want to keep reading in this narrative. There's a couple other things that I think allow Abraham to come to this place of fully trusting God and doing something that even sounds crazy and ludicrous to him and his wife. Verse 5, it says this. It says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and will worship, and we will come back again. And Abram took the wood in the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand and the fire, and the, took in his hand, excuse me, the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Fought my father? And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, both of them, together. See, I think what we see here is that Abraham, because he fully trusted in God's character, is that he actually didn't think that Isaac would die. He knew he was to act in obedience, and at the same time, he expected that God was going to show up as alive, as present, and as powerful. See, when Abraham reached the mountain... He says to his young men, his servants, he says, stay here. The boy and I are going to go worship. And who did he say was going to come back? The boy and I, we're going to come back to you. You see that? And when he's walking with his son Isaac, and Isaac looks and says, Father, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham looks at his son and he says to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
See, it was through the history of the 25 years, again, of Abraham's wandering and Abraham's mistakes and Abraham's failures and all of the questioning, but God's constant faithfulness, God's forgiveness, God's promise, God continuing to lay before Abraham this vision of who he was and what his life could be in partnership with God that allowed Abraham even to respond to his son in that moment and respond to his servants to say, look, I've got to go and be obedient to God. And there was tension in that, I'm sure, contention within his heart. But at the same time, he held with that tension, this belief and this faith that he knew who God was and this confidence that said, I'm going to be back and my son Isaac's going to be with me. Why? Because God is good. Because God is faithful. I believe he's alive and he's present and he's powerful. And if he's asking me to do something in this case, my only right answer is to respond in faith because I've seen over time who he is. I've seen his character, I've seen his consistency, and I know that if God is asking me to do this, and having this son is part of this key plan, then I know that God has something in mind. There's an expectancy that I can have to trust God because of who he is and what he has said in the past. What's remarkable is that if we read on, and we'll do that here, Abraham actually begins to go through with the whole thing. Verse 9, it says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar, and there he laid in the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, what's amazing to me is that this story doesn't end in death, but instead it actually ends in deeper faith for Abraham. And I think that this story actually doesn't only end in deeper faith for Abraham, but it actually ends in faith for his son, Isaac. See, here's a moment where Abraham is wrestling with God, and it's not just him alone, as it was many other times. This time, his son, Isaac, is with him. And Abraham knew that Isaac, too, was supposed to be and was part of this very vision and this very promise that God gave him for life. And this was a key moment and development of not only Abraham's faith, but also for his son to be developed in faith. One who was also basically called into, even if he didn't understand and even didn't know it at that moment, it was faith development for his son as well. See, faith development, I believe, is this. It's about letting God be more and more real in our lives. And through this interaction, God becomes more real for Abraham. He had been already through 25 years, but there was still a piece to which God would say, I need to test and I need to see if Abraham truly believes that I'm real, that I'm present, that I'm powerful, that I'm loving, and that I have his good in mind. But I think this wasn't only about Abraham. Again, this also was about Isaac. That Isaac there, this was a key faith development process for him. And I don't remember the age of Isaac at this time, but can you imagine in his own eyes who God becomes in this moment? At first, I'm sure the questioning, right? I'm sure at first the wrestling. You see it when he's walking up and going, Dad, I see the fire, I see the wood, but uh, where's, the, where, where's the sacrifice? And can you imagine now on this side of it for Isaac to be there and to see that God had provided as his, as his father had said? The faith development of this young boy, that God became more and more real 
in Isaac's eyes, even as he came more and more real in the eyes of his father, Abraham. The story doesn't end in death, again, but it, but it ends in, in greater faith. They experience God's mercy. They experience God's provision yet again. It ends in God's plan of redemption being advanced, not only through Abraham's life, but also through Isaac's life, and so on down the line. Faith development is not just about God becoming more and more real, but it's about relationship. It's about the knowing God personally. It's about experiencing him through the ebbs and the flows of life, and in the midst of it, keeping our eyes fixed on God and his promises and remembering what ultimately he's called us to. Abraham goes through that. He wrestles with that. See, I think one of the things that's powerful about this story is that if you were to think about the gospel, actually the central invitation to the gospel is an invitation to relationship of love and of trust, is it not? Often we think the gospel is about obedience, but the gospel ultimately in the central invitation is about love and about trust. It's about growing and knowing God, his nature, his character, receiving his love and responding to that love and trusting God because of his love for us. And from that, then, yes, flows faith, flows this belief, and out of that then flows obedience. But ultimately, this story shows us that God's heart and his desire is is relationship and us growing and knowing him more and more so that when he calls and he speaks, we're able to respond in a way that says, God, here I am. What, What is it? The same way that we would respond to a friend, in a sense, when they call and they pick up the phone, they say, hey, what's up? How are you doing? Or they send you the message and you respond. You're responding to the character of someone who you've gone through time with, who's been tested with you, and you've, you understand who they are. There's a trust and there's, there's a goodness that invites you to live into a vision of something together, to live into promises of things together. One of the things that I remember about that night when God asked us to give $1,000 to that ministry, uh, I remember just, the, 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 again, the wrestling and the questioning and going, what does this actually mean if we do this? Our, our monthly budget was, was at a place where we didn't even have an excess of $1,000 each month. And so I'm sitting there going, this is like a couple months worth of like excess. And what, what does that mean for us? What, what's that going to look like? How's that going to feel? I remember, though, a couple months after just, again, my wife and I agreeing and living by faith in that, uh, we, had an, we had an envelope uh, about two, three months after. And I opened that envelope, and it was a letter from a family member that I actually hadn't talked to in a couple months. And I remember opening it up, and there was a check in there. Do you guys want to guess how much that check was for? I kid you not, $1,000. Just to check my sincerity on that, this morning when I, before I was leaving, I asked Christine, I said, hey, do you remember the night a couple years ago um, that I spoke at that, that benefit, and God told us to give $1,000? And she just laughed. She goes, yeah? She goes, I'll never forget that. See, my wife and I have, have never forget and forgotten that night. Again, I can tell you exactly the building I was in. I could walk you into that room. I could tell you exactly where I was sitting because there was something about faith development that happened for me in that night because God became more real when he called me out to give in a way that I'd never given before. God had called me and invited me to say, God, here I am, here we are. What are you having me to do? I'll never remember where I was sitting in our house when I got that envelope in the mail. And I opened that envelope and I said to Christine, I said, you won't guess what's in the mail. There was something about faith development that happened for me that day where God became more and more real in my life and in my mind, in my wife's eyes, in my wife's mind. I told three-year-old Otis about it. I don't know if he'll ever remember it. It's a story I'll have to tell him years later. But there was something in faith development for us because we heard God's voice. We responded in faith, even in the midst of something that seemed absolutely ludicrous and crazy. 
But over time of walking with God, we had seen that he was faithful. We'd seen and experienced that he was good. And so when he called to us in that moment, we could respond and say, God, here I am. What is it that you would have us do? I'm grateful for a man named Andy Patton, who's a a theologian and a a pastor in the UK. And he says this about this enactment of this interaction here between uh, God and Abraham. He says that this story is actually what's called in Scripture a prophetic reenactment. A prophetic reenactment. A prophetic reenactment is this. It's that throughout the Bible, God asks prophets to reenact in miniature things that, would, that God was going to do on a larger scale. These stories act themselves, and they seem strange until you see them acted out as allegory, meaning they're pointing to a larger story and a larger truth. And then you start to ask some different questions. See, when we read in Genesis 22, we may think, how could God have required this? But when we view this story through this lens of prophetic reenactment, we can ask now this question of, what did God intend for us to learn through this, both Abraham and us today? Just as God had called the prophet Hosea to act the part of God in marrying a prostitute in Hosea 1. Also, God asked Ezekiel the prophet to lie down on his side for over a year to symbolize the siege of Jerusalem and yet God's faithfulness in Ezekiel 4. So in the same way here, God is asking Abraham to play the part of God himself, sacrificing his one and only son. See, when we view this that way, we begin to ask the question, what son is actually being offered here, and what does this point to? See, what happens here is that when we read this story and thinking about and understanding this this theme of prophetic reenactment, what we see actually is that Abraham and Isaac, in many senses, are pointing forward to the story of Jesus of a God who has one and only son, and yet he looks at the world and he sees the destruction and the pain, and it breaks his heart, and he says, there's nothing that can fix this except if I willingly give my one and only son. See, this, this story causes us to think into acting questions about, about sacrifice, and, and what is sacrifice? Sacrifice is the giving up of one thing of value in the place of another in order that something else can actually live. See, this story points to and paints the picture of of, of the gospel, that God sent his one and only son into the world to die on the cross and to rise again for us as we celebrate over these last few weeks, that God looks at us and sees us as, as so valuable, that God looks at this world and sees it as so valuable, that God looks at us and looks at this world and says, I have plans and I have purposes, and the only way to move those forward and to allow those to happen was to give up my one and only son. And God, at some point in his grace and in his mercy, has called each and every single one of us into the reality of that, into that story, to get to know and to grow in relationship with God and to get to know him as alive and as present and as powerful, such to the point that I believe God wants our lives to also be prophetic reenactments. Do you follow me? That as we interact with God, as we relate with God, and we live into the beauty of the story of the gospel, that God looks at each of us and invites us to be a prophetic presence in our world. That our lives, when we live by faith, actually speak prophetically and faithfully into the world to portray the story of the gospel, the truth of God's love, of God's goodness, of God's faithfulness. The series that we're going through is going to be a series called, called Here I Am, or Here Am I. What we're going to do is we're going to be looking at, uh, mostly through Genesis, mostly the Old Testament, a couple in the New Testament, we're going to be looking at stories, about six or seven stories, of places where God calls out to people, and instead of them hiding and shrinking back, instead of them fearing God or or trying to hide under their shame, 
as Adam and Eve did. Instead, there's only a handful of places in Scripture where God comes and reveals himself, and it's those three simple words, here I am, that people respond. And what we see in those interactions is that because of their faith, their lives are changed. But not only are their lives changed, but the lives of the people around them are changed. And not only are the lives of the people around them are changed, but ultimately redemptive history gets moved along and moved forward in such a way that more and more we see ultimately the birth of Christ in the world. And so over the next six or seven weeks, on the backside here of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, the teaching team and I believe that, that God wants to invite us and challenge us to grow in our belief and our understanding of God as present alive and powerful and inviting us to partner with him and say yes to him, even responding with the words, here I am, when we believe and discern that God is calling us to do something by faith. I want us to learn, Missio, in the next few weeks as part of our journey. Yeah, what does it look like for us to be aware of God speaking to us, calling to us right now in this day and in this time? How do we understand that? How do we discern that it's God's voice and and not just something else? And then what's the action that we take? What's the personal action that God is calling you to take right now in this season because of your relationship with him? Because he wants to use your life to be a prophetic witness in the world about who he is, a God of love, a God of justice, a God of goodness, a God that is alive, present, and powerful with you and in you and in this world to bring about his redemptive plan. So I want to give you this morning, Missio, um, a few questions to think about. First one is this. How might God be calling and inviting you into deeper relationship with him? How is he inviting you to partner with him in this season? This week, I'd encourage you again to, to stop and to slow down, to take a couple minutes quietly, to, to cut out the noise, and again, grab your journal, and you just ask God, say, Lord, how are you inviting me into deeper relationship with you? You know, sometimes we're in positions and places like I was that night sitting in that, that space where someone had created that. But we're not always in that day-to-day, week-to-week. So to stop this week and, and to say, God, where are you inviting me in a deeper relationship? Where are you inviting me to partner with you in this season of my life to move forward your redemptive plan through Jesus Christ? The other question I'd invite you to consider is this. Are there places in your life where you're hiding from God right now? Again, God is a God of pursuit. He's always pursuing in love. And Adam and Eve perpetuated sin and brokenness because they hid. Abraham and others that we looked at, they perpetuated forward faith and and the redemptive story because they didn't hide, but they responded with three simple words. Here I am. Where are you right now and where are the places where you might be hiding? And yet you hear and you sense God calling you out. Last two questions are this. What are the points of contention in your heart in your relationship with God? Maybe you're hiding because it's valid. There's contentious places. Again, for for Abraham, you can imagine that giving up his one and only son, that was a place of contention, right? He had waited, he had longed for this son for 25 years. And when it finally came, you're going to ask me to do what? There's contention there. There's a wrestling there. But Abraham, I believe, was honest to work through that, to to wrestle through that. Where's the contention for you? Be honest with God about that. Write it down. Pray about it. Share it with someone. Say, this is the place where I feel the tension, the invitation to faith and to partnership, and yet, ah, this. To bring that honestly before God. And again, allow his love and his grace to speak into that. 
And finally, connected to that, what might Jesus be calling you to sacrifice in this season so that you can actually experience full life in Christ? See, again, what this story shows us is that sacrifice is the the putting to death of one thing in order that something else can live. The story of the gospel is the sacrifice of one thing, the Son of God, in order that we can actually live fullness of life. The thing about the prophetic reenactment that the prophets went through in the Old Testament is that we're never going to have to do and act in in many regards the same way as them because of the cross. (laughs) We're we're never going to have to physically die. We're never going to have to do some of those things. But what are the places? What are the things that God would invite us and say, I'm asking you to put this thing to death in your life because it's actually not part of the redemptive life that I have for you. It's actually not part of fullness of life that I have for you. And so being willing to wrestle with God, talk with God through that and say, yes, this thing, Lord, I will surrender it. I will give it up. At the same time, trusting and believing that God has something on the other side for me of this thing. Just as Abraham was able and willing to move into this place of sacrificing, but also knowing that God would be faithful. Believing that he was going to go to the mountain, both he and his son, and that I'm going to come back, both my son and I knowing that I'm going up to the mountain with just my son and the fire and the knife, but coming down because God is going to provide a different sacrifice. You know, this morning, um, yeah, we're going to take communion. And I'd invite you this morning, even as Kelly comes up to lead us in closing worship, um, we're going to give you a, a minute. Um, Kelly's going to you know, play kind of instrumentally for a little bit and just give you a minute or two to, to, to sit and to think and even consider those questions. But this morning, I'm not going to lead us through taking of this as I often do. Um, I want to give you a moment to, to hold it and consider it. Realizing that this is what? This is, this is sacrifice. This is a representation of, of Christ, right? His body, his blood broken and shed for you. This is a representation of God's deep and enduring and faithful love for you. This is a symbol of God's promise and his faithfulness to us as his people. And I'd encourage you to look at it and to hold it and to consider and begin to talk to God about uh, those questions. And then after that, when you're ready, to to take it and to open it. And let that be even just an act of faith. That it may be the thing that you're wrestling with. You don't feel like you can fully say yes to God this morning. But to receive and take this as a symbol of God's love and grace and faithfulness to you that that would maybe remind you and be encouragement to say, yeah, God, if, if this is the type of love that you have for me, that maybe there's a response that you'll give me the empowerment to, to do, to say, Lord, here I am, in order to live more fully into the life that, that you're calling me to. So, Miss you this morning. I just, I, I love you. I'm so grateful for uh, the faith that we've exhibited uh, over many years. Um, and I'm excited and looking forward to, to what's ahead as we learn to be people who say, here I am, and respond to God in faith.